In this EM Cases podcast, I've gathered together some of the most important adult and pediatric EM literature of 2016 from two great conferences, North York General Hospital's 30th Annual Emergency Medicine Update, EMU, conference in Toronto, and University of Toronto's Update in EM conference in Whistler. We'll hear from Joel Yaffe, former U of T EM program director, who's been critically appraising articles and practicing EM for more than 30 years. And he'll be discussing the Procameo study, attached to antibiotics for abscesses, platelets for head bleeds, and workup of subarachnoid hemorrhage. We'll hear from EM Cases and First 10 EM's Justin Morgenstern. He'll give us his take on some of the studies that Joel covers, as well as dosing IV Ketorolac and the PESIT trial. And last but not least, we'll hear from Jason Fisher, Chief at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, who'll fly through ketamine dosing for sedation, instructions after minor head injury, Salter-Harris-1 fractures of the lateral malleolus, and interpreting oxygen saturations for disposition decision-making in kids with bronchiolitis. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. So this is a patient, 50 years old, comes in. He says he's got some palpitations. Cardiogram is done. And when a cardiogram like this is done, usually everybody in the department gets involved in looking at it. So everybody gets called around and you're looking at this cardiogram. You say, what is it? What is it? What is it? And everybody decides that this is VTAC. And you go back to the patient. Do you have chest pain? No. Do you have shortness of breath? No. Are you okay? Keep saying okay. And he says, if you ask me any more times, I'm just gonna say the same thing, I feel fine. So this person has stable VTAC. The guidelines, such as they are for, for the management of stable VTAC, class both amiodarone and procainamide uh, as class two recommendations for use for stable VTAC. But there's really no evidence to support the benefit of one over the other. Uh, along came the Procameo study, which was published last year. And this was a study that looked at comparing intravenous procainamide versus intravenous amio for stable VTAC. Uh, the patients had a regular heart rhythm. It was greater than 120 beats per minute with a QRS greater than 120 milliseconds. They had to have good hemodynamic tolerance. So they weren't hypoperfused and they had reasonable blood pressures, but if you look, they would accept people with pressures as low as 90. In adjudication after the, after the, uh, the study, about 90% of them were felt by blinded adjudicators to have true VTAC. So what did they do with the patients? Uh, one group got procainamide, 10 milligrams per kilogram, over 20 minutes, and the other group got amio, 5 milligrams per kilogram, over 20 minutes, and the patients were followed for 40 minutes from the onset. Uh, the infusions were stopped if they converted, and they were stopped for some other reasons. So the people coming into this study thought, as maybe you would think, that amio was going to be the safer drug. That's what they thought. They weren't sure it was going to work better, but they thought it was going to be safer. So what they wanted to look at is the comparison of major cardiac events. This was what they really wanted to look at, but their secondary endpoint was to see if one drug worked better than the other. These are the major cardiac adverse effects that they wanted to look at. And these are things that I think we would all recognize, people who were hypoperfusing, severe hypotension. And by the way, they, they were kind of happy to, to look at people and have their pressures run down to 80-ish. They didn't stop things just because the pressure hit 80 necessarily. 
acceleration of tachycardia would be a reason to stop and if they had a change in their rhythm to uh, polymorphic VT. So these were the things they were concerned about. And here's the results. So I gave you a lot of data. This is what their data results look like. But there's really only two things you need to look at, which is that the major cardiac events in the procainamide group, uh, it was about 9%. In the amio group, it was 41%. Statistical difference. Amio caused more major cardiac events. This was a surprise to the investigators. Uh, the other thing was that amio seemed to be less effective at terminating the arrhythmia. The, actually, the arrhythmia is terminated fairly quickly on, and you know, about 15 minutes or so, but procainamide seemed to be better at termination and cause less effects. And amio caused a number of severe events requiring acute DC cardioversion, either severe hypotension, where the people said we need to cardiovert, or severe hypotension, where the patient actually became pretty unwell. So the authors concluded that procainamide therapy associated with less major cardiac events and a higher proportion of tachycardia termination within 40 minutes. There were some issues that people who looked at this study flagged. It was a pretty small sample size, so there might have been some differences that would have showed up in a bigger sample. In the system, this was done in Spain, people were allowed, people with stable VTAC actually could have been treated in the pre-hospital vehicles en route. So they didn't get everybody with stable VTAC. There might have been uh, the people that were treated before they got to hospital might have been a, a population that if added on to this, might have changed the results, hard to know. And the other thing is the dose of amio that they gave was a little on the high side, higher than what would have been recommended for VT um, in the current guidelines, and that might have caused more side effects in the amio group. But having said that, the data were pretty compelling that procainamide works better and it's, and it's safer. The other thing is that regardless of Procamio, one could say, I'm just going to shock them. Why not? How many people would just shock this patient? Yeah, and that's perfectly acceptable. I, I would say one thing. Um, I think if you're going to shock people for this or for AF, I think you have to let people know that there are options. You can say what your preferred option is, but it's probably a good idea to let them know that you know that there are some drugs that I can give you that seem to be pretty safe. So I think you should tell them, regardless of whether you want to shock them or not. And the only other point that I'd say related to this, which kind of interests me, so how many people here, how many people here use procainamide for conversion of acute atrial fibrillation? Eric, how do you give it? A gram over an hour. So that's what everybody does. That's based on the Ottawa protocol. You know, before the Ottawa protocol, People were giving it faster, and if you look at how they gave it in this study, they gave it faster. Uh, and there's some data, it's not good clinical data, but there's some animal model data that the way procainamide works to convert AFib is related to the level, the acute blood level. So there may be some benefit in giving it a little more quickly if it's safe. And this shows that this is safe. Like they were giving 700 milligrams over 20 minutes to a 70 kilo person. When I try to kind of crank up the rate, because I've been giving this pre-Ottawa stuff, the nurses go, well, we're really not allowed to, but it looks like uh, it's safe to give it a little more quickly, something you might want to consider, because it doesn't seem to cause problems. So 
this is my summary for, for Procamio. I think if I was going to treat stable VT with a drug, I would go for procainamide over Amio. You can offer shock as an alternative. So that's Dr. Yaffe's take on Amio versus procainamide for stable VTAC from Whistler's update and EM conference. Let's listen to what Justin Morgenstern has to say about the same study from Toronto's EMU conference. And really easy bottom line here, amiodarone loses by a lot. So their primary outcome was major adverse events, and they happen 40% of the time with amiodarone, only 10% of the time with procainamide. And in terms of actually stopping the VTAC, procainamide works 70% of the time, amiodarone only 40% of the time. Now, my first-line drug for VTAC is probably still a small dose of propofol followed by a big jolt of electricity, but if you're medically managing these patients, I think it's pretty clear procainamide should probably be your first-line choice here. So it looks like if you're going to give a medication for stable VTAC, procaine's the go-to drug. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to review the PATCH study looking at platelet transfusion for ICH associated with antiplatelet therapy. Okay. Next paper. So patient on clopridogrel uh, presents with an acute intracerebral hemorrhage. GCS is 12. Your colleague is treating the patient, and your colleague says, look, this person's got a bleed. He's on clopidogrel. You know, clopidogrel isn't good for platelets. Should I give this person platelets? Should I give them platelets? So this is something that all of us in this room, if we haven't seen it, we will see it. Because about 10 to 20% of strokes are going to be bleeds. And in the um, high-income countries, a quarter of the people who come in with hemorrhagic uh, strokes are going to be on some kind of antiplatelet agent. It's a common thing, and we probably have and will see this. And the problem is that if you bleed and you're on an antiplatelet agent, you do worse. So there is some hope, and there was some little bit of data that suggested that if we can give these people platelets, you might lower the, the hematoma expansion, and you might uh, have better outcomes. This was the hope. So this was a hope that generated the PATCH study. And the PATCH study uh, was published in The Lancet. This was an open-label study, so it wasn't blinded. It was blinded to analysis, a uh, bunch of hospitals. Um, and these had to be people, they had to present within six hours, and they had to have antiplatelet agents on board for at least seven days beforehand and they had to have a GCS of at least eight. So that was the inclusion. Um, they did not want people who had surgical lesions, so they tried to get everybody out who people might have been thinking they would operate on. Um, so these would be big hematomas, things with shift, other stuff, right? They wanted um, bleeds that people were gonna treat medically. And there were two arms. There was standard care, which didn't involve platelets. And then there was care that involved platelets. And the amount of platelets you would get depended on whether you were just on a COX inhibitor. Their COX inhibitor was aspirin and another kind of salicylate drug available, uh, or uh, ADP inhibitor, which was clopidogrel. They also add in the COX inhibitor arm, they may or may not have been on dipyridamol. So two arms uh, that got platelets. You need to understand some of the ways that these neurology studies have been evaluated. So if you go back, way, way back to the NINDS, the TPA studies initially, the, the endpoint that people cared about, the two endpoints that people cared about were death 
or a combination of death and severe disability. So if you had a modified Rankin scale of four and six, that was severe disability or death. What these studies started to find is there was something going on, but they couldn't always find differences in these things. And so they invented this thing, which is an ordinal analysis. It was a modified analysis. There was a bit of controversy because they, they tacked it on to one of the TPA studies later on to seemingly fudge the data. But it's taken hold in the neurology uh, literature as a measure of benefit or lack of benefit of intervention, even though some people think it's kind of a created phenomenon. So here were the patients. Um, this is what they had. They had 190 patients. Most of them were on a COX inhibitor plus or minus diperidamol. Uh, Very few people were on clopidogrel. So you have to remember that when we get to the end. It seems like there are worse outcomes in the standard care group when they do this ordinal analysis. Um, I don't know the exact details of crunching the numbers, but this is what they all do. However, in addition to this ordinal analysis, they also found that more people in the platelet group had worse outcomes, had bad outcomes. So this is a very strong endpoint. And there were no significant differences in safety. So the authors concluded that platelet transfusions uh, seem to increase the risk of death or dependence in participants who have acute intracerebral hemorrhage taking antiplatelet therapy. There are some postulated mechanisms. You know, all of these things that they do in ICH are based at trying to limit hematoma expansion. And if whatever you do doesn't limit the expansion, you probably can't do any good, and then you're left with potential harmful effects. And it's known that platelets um, do have some prothrombotic effects, some pro-inflammatory effects. So uh, there is some theory that it, we're not fixing the hematoma, and then we're giving other bad stuff. And so even though it seems counterintuitive, it seems like there's a problem with platelets. There's a lot of stuff you can't say. There's probably not a lot of people, uh, enough people in the clopidogrel group to know if clopidogrel would be the same. And there were overall low numbers that there's some chance errors. But I have to say, um, this is one of the studies where a lot of the real big players, the big decision makers in hematology, in treatment of these entities got together and they've all said, you know what, this is going to be our practice for the time being. So if you were giving platelet transfusions to patients who came in on a COX-2 inhibitor antiplatelet agent with a head bleed, it's probably best to stop doing that and concentrate your energies on other measures to decrease hematoma expansion instead. Okay, let's take the same patient, but not on antiplatelet agents, has a blood pressure of 195 over, over 100, comes in with an intracerebral hematoma, the nursing staff comes to you and says, doctor, the uh, blood pressure is 195 over 100. What do you want to do? You say, well, uh, let me just think about it. And then they come back to you in another five minutes. Oh, the pressure is, uh, you know, 198 over 103. What do you want to do? Has this ever happened to you? 
Uh, it happens to me. I, the, the whole issue of what do we do with hypertensive bleeds, there have been some guidelines. So if you looked at this stuff between 2010 and 2015, it would have said, look, if they're hypertensive at certain levels, you should try to get the blood pressure down to about 160 over 190 with a map of 110. And um, you should do it with IV medications and you should closely monitor the patient. Now, it wasn't that you had to. They said consider it because the data showing that this is effective was always weak. But there was this theoretical stuff saying, well, you know, um, these people do worse because their hematoma gets bigger, and if we can drop down the pressure, maybe the hematoma won't grow. And there was always this sense that we should be able to do this safely. Four years ago, uh, the INTERACT-2 trial came out, which was a trial that looked at rapid lowering of pressure in hypertensive bleed patients to get their pressure down to 140. So they had two arms, one of them got that initial standard of care, and the other one they, they dropped them uh, down to 140 over 90. It was not tightly controlled, they used different drugs, the timing was a little off, but it was a big study, and it was waited for, and the results showed in patients with ICH, uh, intensive lowering did not result in a reduction of the rate of primary outcome of death or severe disability. So they didn't find what their primary outcome was. But what they did is, remember that ordinal analysis stuff that I bored you about earlier on? They, partway through their study protocol, they added on an ordinal analysis. Before the data was crunched, they said, oh, you know what, everybody else is using this. Let's do the ordinal analysis. And when they did that, they said there was some improvement. But at the same time, they showed no growth in hematoma size, which is what they were expecting this was all about. So a lot of people were not thrilled with this study, that this study determined anything. However, in 2015, based largely on, on findings of this particular study, this was an add-on to the, to the treatment of um, intracerebral hemorrhage, which said that, you know, if the pressure is between 150 over 120, you could rapidly lower it to 140. It's safe, and it might help. So that was the INTERACT-2 trial, which Dr. Yaffe didn't seem too impressed by. Now we're going to switch over to Justin Morgenstern from EMU, who's going to talk about the ATTACH-2 trial out of the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016. And then we'll go back to see what Dr. Yaffe has to say about that. Have you ever turned on the news and just realized they're just saying the same things over and over and over again? Yeah, I understand. EBM can be a lot like that. And one of the topics is this. A patient bleeds in their head. What do we do about the blood pressure, right? We all want to know. And so the attached 2 trial came out last year. It was a big, multi-center, randomized trial. And they compared a target systolic blood pressure that was between 140 and 180 to a target between 110 and 140. If you've ever flicked on that EBM news in the past, you already know the results here, because it's the same every time that we do this. There is no difference between the groups. Lowering blood pressure in patients with head bleeds does not help them. So what do you do? I know everybody wants a number, but you gotta know, any number that we're gonna give you is just entirely made up. I actually think, my personal opinion, is that we're entirely focused on the wrong class of drugs here. Head bleeds hurt, and whenever I give these patients some doses of fentanyl, that blood pressure just seems to take care of itself. And now back to Dr. Yaffe to give you some more details on the ATTACH-2 trial. 
So this was a much more tightly controlled trial where everybody got the same drug to uh, look at patients and lower some of them quickly to a target of 140 and treat the others with the standards from the 2010 guidelines. So these had to be people who were in fairly decent shape. They couldn't have huge hematomas. They had to have a GCS of at least five, and actually about two-thirds of them were in the 12 to 15 category. So they were pretty well patients, and they had to be treated early. The two groups were, one group, they kind of wanted to get them down to below 139, and the other ones had the standard treatment. And they wanted to keep them there for 24 hours. Uh, their primary endpoint was death or severe death or disability. So this is the one that I like. Number of people in the modified ranking scale, four to six. None of the ordinal analysis stuff. They wanted to go for the good stuff. That's purely an editorial comment on my part, but I think it's the good stuff. They also wanted to look for hematoma expansion. And the study was, uh, they planned to, to randomize 1,280 people it was terminated after 1,000. You know, the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Board said, you got to terminate the study because you were never going to show a benefit. You will not show a benefit. Uh, there is going to be no difference in death or disability and no difference in hematoma expansion. And because of that, you can't justify putting the other people at risk to potential harm. So the study was stopped. And the other thing they found was it looked like there were some high rates of adverse effect in the intensive treatment group, mainly based on rapid lowering of the blood pressure and some renal effects. So the study was stopped, but stopped with a statement saying the intervention doesn't do anything. So the authors concluded that the notion um, um, that reducing these blood pressures to a target of 140 is going to improve outcome is, is false it's not going to help. And uh, they said there's no evidence. So for me, lowering the blood pressure to 140 in all intracerebral hemorrhage, I'd say, forget about it for me. I might pick and choose. I would say this. When I'm faced with somebody with an intracerebral hemorrhage who's hypertensive, I don't look at the blood pressure too early on. I want to make sure that I'm treating pain agitation, full bladders, hypoglycemia, any of the other things that might be pushing up pressure. Because a lot of times, the pressure will drop just by treating symptoms. If the pressure is high enough, I think I would try to get it down to what the previous guidelines said, to about 160. And I just would warn you that, and this paper says as well, Everybody feels you have to be particularly cautious in anybody who's showing any signs of raised ICP or any signs of local compression. Because if you've got a big bleed, if you've got raised ICP or anything else that's compromising cerebral perfusion pressure and you start to dial down the blood pressure, you could take areas of the brain and put them at risk. So you have to be really, really careful. And the ones that you might really worry about, the ones that look bad, that are a little bit altered, they may be the ones with raised ICP. So you may want to get some help in your institution. And now onto the question of antibiotics for abscesses. 26-year-old man presents with an abscess on his arm. You perform an IND. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. How many people after having IND'd an abscess, have never, ever, ever in their life prescribed an antibiotic after an IND. 
So I'm going to presume that everybody has at least some time done it. How many people, after having performed an IND, always prescribe an antibiotic? OK, one person. So good for you. So um, it's kind of an issue. We've got most of us are doing it sometimes and not doing it other times. This is a study by Dave Talon, which looked at the use of, um, of antibiotics for uh, post-IND, and they had 1,265 patients. They IND'd them. They gave half of them double-strength septra, two double-strength septa twice a day, which is more than what I use, and they gave the other ones placebo. Uh, they followed them up regularly, um, and they had a follow-up visit at 14 to 21 for test of cure, and um, they defined clinical failure as a bunch of stuff that we would probably say, yeah, that's clinical failure. It's more red. It's not getting better. And it depended on the time course. So they defined clinical failure. And uh, what they found was um, cure at 7 to 14 days. The septra, the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole group, the cure rate was 80%. The placebo route was 76%, lower rates of all kinds of stuff. And they said, well, you know what? This seems to be better. Now, their MRSA rate was about 45%. So their conclusions were, if you um, are in a setting in which MRSA is prevalent, then uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole treatment resulted in a higher cure rate among patients with a drained abscess than did placebo. People kind of commented on this study and said, you know, they, it looked like they didn't get all patients with abscesses. So they had some kind of a sample, uh, but might not have been representative of the larger group. Uh, they used a high dose of Septra. They said, well, they based it on a 1994 Sanford publication. Uh, do, do most of you use double, two double-strength Septra for, for MRSA? So it's a little bit not what we're using. However, part of the problem is that we all use antibiotics sometimes. So, you know, the better question would be, if we gave antibiotics to everybody, are we going to do any better than Eric does by deciding who he thinks needs antibiotics, however he does that? And there's some guidelines, and the, and the people admitted in their study that, that they had some people who met guideline criteria for antibiotic usage. So it's not so helpful to say, we're going to give people none because some of those people, I think, a judicious physician would have treated. I think the study, to me, says, you know, there's a role. There's a role for antibiotics. I'm not sure we know who it is, um, but I would say that for this study, it could make you think that you should be giving antibiotics to everybody who's got an abscess, and I would say, I don't think it shows that. So the Talon New England Journal of Medicine study on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole versus placebo for uncomplicated skin abscesses doesn't really change Dr. Yaffe's practice, probably not most of ours. Here's Justin Morgenstern's take. All right, I almost hate to talk about this next study because before this paper came out, the management of abscesses was so easy. You cut them open and you're done. That's it, right? No irrigation, no packing, no antibiotics. It was so easy. But now we have a paper that says there's benefit to antibiotics. And this is a randomized controlled trial, big, multi-center. And they randomized patients either get placebo or, for some reason, two double-strength scepter tabs twice a day. So twice the usual dose. And the pharmacist will call you about this every time, I'll, I'll tell you. And the antibiotic group did better. There was about a 7% increase in cure rate by two weeks. So not bad. 
Now, that has to be balanced against there was about a 6% increase in GI side effects, so it's a little bit of take, pick your poison, I suppose. But there's one big thing that you need to know about this study, and it depends on where you work. When I look at these patients, they're all a lot sicker than the patients that I see in my community hospital. They all had extensive cellulitis. There was a lot of diabetes, a lot of MMRSA. Many of them were febrile. So these aren't simple abscesses that we're talking about. These are a little bit sicker. So what do I do? I still ignore those small abscesses. If there's not cellulitis, if the patient's healthy, we're not going antibiotics at all. For all other patients, this is one of those great times for shared decision-making. So I use antibiotics right now, but I don't use them routinely. I reserve them for the patients who I think are the highest risk and after we have a conversation about them. Now we're going to move on to the age-old question of LP after CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage. So take it away, Dr. Yaffe. A 38-year-old comes in with a headache, started four hours ago. You're concerned about a subarachnoid hemorrhage, but the CT scan was reported as normal. What do you do? So um, false negative or or false reports of CT scans are an issue. This study was a a retrospective review, and, and what they did was they went back and looked at people who were diagnosed with subarachnoid hemorrhages. And they found a number of them who were CT negative. But even being CT negative, they went on to have a full workup. These were all people who had aneurysms diagnosed clipped. So it wasn't just, yeah, probables. These were definite subarachnoids. And they found a bunch of them where they were CT negative, And they wanted to see, well, were they really CT negative or not? So they gave them to two newer radiologists for review. And just to make it fun, they threw in a bunch of people who, were, who did not have subarachnoid hemorrhages. They were the control group. And they gave them definitions. They didn't just say, tell us what you think. They said, these are the definitions of subarachnoid hemorrhage. We don't really need to read them, but they gave them guidelines. They said, if you see this, we want you to call it probable. If you see this, definite and no evidence. How many people are using Perry's rule well, if, where if the CT is negative in six hours, you're good to go? We, we use this. So we... To find out that seven people had negative CTs, um, it's a little bit worrisome. As it turns out, when they were reviewed, in fact, five of them, it was clear that they had uh, CT evidence of subarachnoid hemorrhage, and the other two had other stuff that would have led to, um, to the diagnosis. So actually, on review, um, it was pretty good, but they were missed first time around. And then in the people that were outside that six-hour window, there were also ones where the radiologists misread scans. What's the point? Well, this is no surprise, but there's an incidence of CT-negative subarachnoid that is due to radiologist misinterpretation. The, uh, the authors say you should question the, the radiologist about the subtle signs of CT in cases of suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this is like with anything, and this is a repeated message, but I think it's quite all right to call the radiologist and say, I'm really worried about a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I'm really worried about it. Is there anything there that you see makes you feel uneasy? And they can have another look. And I think we should get in the habit of doing this with all 
of our tests where there's high risk. Again, context, sometimes we don't put in our clinical suspicions well, but I think it's really important that we talk to the radiologist, and then you may have to go back. When the test itself doesn't fit with what the clinical suspicion is, then, then you have to go back, no matter how much faith you have in the test. My take-home point is in a high-risk situation where the radiology report is not consistent with the clinical impression, uh, you should have a direct discussion with the radiologist. And I, I find they don't mind. And I find that they'll look at stuff and say, you know, there could be something there. Your clinical impression is really, really, really important on the x-ray requisition, so please throw it in. And the skill set of the consultant is also important. So if we, a lot of the time we are getting reports from an R2 in the middle of the night who may not feel totally comfortable and it's okay for us to maybe give them permission to call their staff and run it by them because we're concerned. And uh, you may need to do this whether it's with radiology or medicine or anybody else. All right, let's review the adult literature of 2016 that we've covered so far. If you're going to grab a drug for stable VT, procainamide is your go-to. Next, do not give platelets to people with ICH who are on antiplatelet drugs. And go easy on the BP control in these patients. Treat their pain and anxiety, which may be enough. When it comes to antibiotics for abscesses, if you're already reserving antibiotics only for those with extensive cellulitis, fever, immunocompromise, etc., just keep on doing what you're doing and don't let this one big study make you think that everyone with an abscess requires antibiotics. And finally, get to know your radiologist. For high-risk studies like subarachnoid hemorrhage, if the radiographic studies are read as negative, it might be helpful to go and review the study with your radiologist. Next, we've got Dr. Jason Fisher, the director of the emergency department at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, talk about PEDS literature of 2016. What's a good question about bronchiolitis? Anybody have a question about bronchiolitis? Anything bother them about the diagnosis of bronchiolitis? So one of the things that comes up kind of time after time is pulse oximetry. What is the role of oximetry, right? How many people use a pulse ox as a criteria for admission? Since oximetry became routine in the 1980s, hospital rates for bronchiolitis have risen from 12.9 per thousand patients to 31.2 per thousand patients. So it's more than doubled almost tripled, and the cost is now $1.73 billion a year in the U.S. for bronchiolitis admissions. And a lot of us admit because of pulse ox. So, cue this great study, they ask a great question, which was, what's the effect of oxygen desaturations on subsequent medical visits in infants discharged from the emergency department with bronchiolitis? So how do they define a desat? That was if you went lower than 90% for more than a minute. Right? That makes good, good, reasonable sense. So what they did was they saw these kids in the ED, and I can tell you, I was working at the time, it was, a little, uh, it was a little strange. They had like a fake pulse ox machine, so you didn't really know what the pulse ox was, but a nurse did, so a nurse knew that if anything dangerous was happening. And then they sent the family home with a pulse ox machine, and they measured it. And what they found was when you looked at these kids, this is amazing, 118 kids, 64% of them when they went home spent more than a minute under 90%, 50% had more than three of these desaturations. 43% had desaturations lasting more than three minutes. 
10% had desaturations more than 10% of the time they were monitored. And this is where things get good. 79% had a desat less than 80% for a minute. And 39% spent more than one minute under 70% pulse ox. Now, what was the difference between the two groups? It was the same. Those that didn't have DSATs and those that did, despite these kind of alarming numbers, right, that would make most of us admit, no unscheduled visits, no difference in hospitalizations when they followed them up. So the majority of children with mild bronchiolitis have DSATs. And when you send them home and you look at those that DSAT and those don't, they have comparable rates of return. So should we really be looking at DSAT as a measure just for admission? So in our center now, people will look at really the, the patient as a whole and not just make a, make a decision based on the pulse ox alone. So I think that's important. That's a practice changer. So the bottom line there is if you have a little kitty with bronchiolitis and you're thinking maybe admission, maybe setting them home, don't let that transient DSAT to 88 or 89 or 90 make you automatically admit them. They're probably safe to go home. Don't make disposition decisions just on the O2 sat alone. Okay, two. What's a good question about concussion? What's the worst part about diagnosing a kid with concussion and then sending them home? What do you tell them to do when they go home? Go home and do nothing, right? You tell them to sit in like a dark room. Is that really the best thing to do? So there was this great, this great study that, that looked at the association between early participation and physical activity, following an acute concussion, and these persistent post-concussive symptoms. Now, these symptoms are like fatigue, depression, anxiety, those kind of chronic things that we all deal with. So what this study does did, what it, it kind of looked at those that were active and those that were inactive, and it checked to see you know, how many of them had these symptoms. And what they found was in the active group, so 70% of the total group ended up being active, and of those that were active, only 31% were symptom-free. 48% had at least three of these kind of post-concussive symptoms. But of the non-active group, almost 80% ended up with these symptoms. Now, this is one of those tricky studies where you have to be careful because maybe you feel better and then you go out and you're active. But it kind of begs the question, uh, should we be limiting activity? Should kids just be going out and seeing how much they can do, and is that a healthier approach? And so this has kind of prompted some more prospective studies to look at this question. So maybe by telling kids to sit in a dark room and not do anything, we're not doing them any favors. So the take-home is kind of physical activity within 70 days of injury compared to no physical activity is associated with these, these kind of persistent post-concussive post symptoms. So maybe we should be doing things a little differently. Three, sedation. What dose do you usually start with with your ketamine sedations? One per kilo? One and a half per kilo? Anybody use two per kilo? So this study looked at what's the optimal dosing. And it took kind of the most common doses, one, one and a half, and two. And it looked to see which one, you know, kind of worked the best. Like, can we figure this out? And when you looked at them, the need for redosing was clearly higher if you use one per kilo. And a lot less if you use one and a half or two per kilo. But this is where things get interesting because most of us shy away from higher doses because we think it's going to have a prolonged time in the ED, right? Prolonged recovery. And they didn't find that. 
And in fact, they found that the physician satisfaction in this blinded study was worse when you use the lowest dose. So this kind of supports some other studies that have said we should start at one and a half. And this one even begs the question if for some procedures we should go up to two. So higher doses did not increase adverse events or prolonged sedation, required less redosing, and also had a greater physician satisfaction. So when it comes to dosing ketamine for procedural sedation in kids, this study suggests that 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram is the best dose. However, you might recall from our pediatric sedation podcast that lower doses given as a super fast IV push may be preferred for short procedures. But validation studies for that practice aren't out yet. So for now, 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, and keep your ears open for the validation study for low-dose, super-fast IV push ketamine. So we get these lateral ankles, and we always worry about these Salter-Harris 1s. Remember the Salter-Harris 1? And for a long time, we treated these by putting kids in a splint, you know, give it a good chance to heal. It was a real fracture. But was it a real fracture? So what Kathy Budis and her team did was they took all these and they, they did an MRI. And what they found was that they had 135 kids, and of those, only four, when they had the MRI, had a real Salter-Harris 1. The majority of them, 108, had ligamentous injuries. 27 had bony contusions. So first of all, we weren't really diagnosing a lot of Salter-Harris 1s. But more importantly, that if you just put these kids in a removable ankle brace and have self-regulated return, they did the same. They had similar recoveries without any issue. So, you know, the old idea of Salter Harris 1, needing a splint, following up with ortho, not necessarily if you have a normal x-ray. All right? Think of the x-ray like the ECG. That's what I've learned here. Now, don't forget that even for non-displaced Salter Harris 2 lateral malleolus fractures in kids, they heal just as well in just a simple ankle stirrup brace as they do in a back slab or a boot. But studies show that patients actually prefer the ankle stirrup brace and they mobilize earlier. And that was from a study also from Kathy Budis out of CMAG in 2010. Drug safety. Good questions about drug safety. So who's heard about the dangers of potentially giving ibuprofen to asthmatics? Because it could exacerbate things. A few people have put their hands up. So this is a good New England Journal study. It looked at this exact question. If we're using... Tylenol versus Advil for typical fever and pain control in kids. Are we putting them at adverse, uh, at risk? 300 kids, randomized, double-blinded, prospective study over 48 weeks, showed no difference. So there's no risk of asthma exacerbation linked to ibuprofen. So for those of you that didn't know this was an issue, it doesn't matter. <laughs> for those of you that did, <laughs> you can go back to using Advil. All right? Good. What about something else that we do? We treat pain, right, with appendicitis. How do we do that in the kind of how we vary our practice? Looking at kids that came in, 619 kids with suspected appendicitis. 61% got morphine. This is the crazy thing. The initial dose for most of them was 0.06 milligrams per kilogram. That's like throwing morphine at somebody, right? It's not really giving it to them. It's like throwing it on them. 25% got Tylenol. And... Um, of those, the time from triage to first dose typically was 196 minutes. 43% got morphine or pain control only after they were seen by a consultant. And 43% got pain control only after their ultrasound. 
So potentially another place where we could definitely narrow and standardize our practice to the betterment of our patients. Would you agree? So then the question is, well, do clinical pathways and do they work? When we standardize care, do those things work? So this was a before and after retrospective. The transition time was around 2010. And this was just the introduction of a standard order set for febrile young infants. This was kids under 56 days with a fever of 38. They had 520 kids enrolled. And what they showed was that the, their pathway really improved timeliness of care and decreased variability of care. So now there was a 23-minute reduction in the time to urine collection. There was a 36-minute reduction in the time to first antibiotics, right? Those are pretty significant time changes. And there was an improvement just in the stewardship of antibiotics and in the use of acyclovir. So this is a pathway that was introduced. It was introduced at a, an academic center and over time showed a significant change in practice, increased, improved some good metrics, and helped decrease variability. Here's another example. This was an asthma, a study that looked at asthma implementation, again, using quality improvement methodology, some asthma scoring and beta agonist administration. And what they found was when they introduced an order set and introduced scoring, asthma scoring at triage, what they found was it improved the timeliness of care. So they're scoring at triage. They went from no one being scored to about 95% of people being scored with the implementation of these QI measures. And then this is where things are really interesting. They kind of improved the time to their first dose of, of a beta agonist, 32 minutes or 47%. And then the third, so they get one time, they improve that by 47%. When they look at the third dose, so how you're re-dosing, they decrease that by a quarter, 25%. And then the length of stay uh, improved by 15%. And the admission rate decreased by 6% without any return visit changes. So some of these standardized pathways, they allow you to get the medicine that much more quickly. It decreases the variability. And these have real impacts on patient care. All right, this is probably the big one. We all worry about septic shock in pediatrics, and we want to have some high reliability, right? That's the, the word that gets buzzed around. So this group introduced a whole sepsis bundle, a sepsis bundle. And we've done something similar at SickKids. But they wanted to look, they looked at over, over this kind of eight-year period where they introduced the bundle. In, the, in that time, they had 1,300 kids presented kind of in this huge center with septic shock. They improved all of the interventions over time. So this was like over eight years. They did all these different quality improvement things to, you know, screening, antibiotics. And over that time, the odds ratio of kids that had the bundle versus those that didn't, they increased mortality, the, the risk of death by five times. Five times, you were five times more likely to die before they implemented all these things till after. So that's an eight-year time frame. It's a pretty significant improvement. So anyways, I guess the take-home, when I look at this literature base and what it's doing, it's showing us that our, our, you know, our practice is pretty variable. And it's also demonstrating that by standardizing, we're seeing real benefits. You know, those benefits go right to the patients. Kids grow up. So I think this is, there's one other study to think about in terms of advocacy that came out this year. It's this one. This was a big New England Journal study. And this looked at from 1967 to 2010, 
it looked at these 2.3 million Israeli adolescents. And what they were looking at was the association of their BMI in adolescents to their risk of cardiovascular disease when they became adults, when they crossed that 40 threshold. So they had 42 million person years of follow-up. Over, that, over this whole study, there was 9% of deaths were cardiovascularly related. And beginning at, with a BMI in adolescents from 50 to the 74th percentile, which is actually part of the normal group, they noticed a graded increase in death from cardiovascular disease when these kids grew up. So they kind of showed pretty clearly that if you not just were in that normal group, but if you were overweight and you were obese, then you had a strongly associated risk of growing up and having cardiovascular disease that actually led to death in adulthood. It's the strongest evidence we have to really advocate for kids to be active, to be healthy, and to think about some of these risks in adolescence when they're starting to be able to make some decisions for themselves. You know, even though this last study that Dr. Fisher reviewed isn't exactly the most sexy, exciting resuscitation study in pediatric emergency medicine, I think it's important to realize that when patients are in the ED, counseling them briefly about things like smoking cessation or obesity management, substance abuse, those sorts of things, that counseling can lead to lifelong positive impact on their health, more impact than counseling in an outpatient setting, the studies show. Like I recently wrote in an article for EM Docs for their EM Mindset series, we need to start thinking beyond the walls of the ED and take a minute or two to counsel patients on these kinds of things. It's another way we can save lives. Now for the last pediatric study in our 2016 Literature Year in Review, we're going to go back to Justin Morgenstern at EMU talking about when, if ever, kids need to be NPO before procedural sedation. And after that, Justin will talk about Ketorolac dosing and the PESIT trial for PE and syncope. All right, I'm really hoping this next topic is old news, that we've all already heard about this, but it's so important for our patients and for the flow of our departments, we have to talk about NPO time for sedation. And the study to know about from 2016 is a massive pediatric database. They looked at 140,000 pediatric sedations, and they compared the ones who were kept NPO to those who weren't, and there was no difference at all, none. Now, it's observational data, which means there's going to be some confounders mixed in there. So I don't want you to pay attention to the stats, to the actual difference there. I want you to hear the absolute numbers in this trial. The aspiration rate was 1 in 10,000 in both groups. 1 in 10,000. The point is, procedural sedation is so safe that longer MPO times just can't help. They can't add benefit here. And this is consistent with all the literature we've seen on this topic before in the past. If you're having trouble with this in your hospital, there's often a policy. You should know there is an ASEP clinical policy out there that specifically says, do not delay procedural sedation in the emergency department based on NPO time. So hopefully we can get this settled. Now this next study asks a really important question, does size matter? in terms of ketorolac dosing, right? And this was always weird, right? The oral dose of ketorolac is 10 milligrams, but we give 30 IV. How does that make any sense? This is a great randomized control trial. They compared 10 to 15 to 30 milligrams of ketorolac given IV for patients in the emergency department with pain, 
and there was no differences between the two groups. You don't get more pain relief with a higher dose. Now, in this study, they didn't show more harm with the higher dose, but it's a universal rule in medicine. Higher doses equal more harm. So this was so easy for me. Immediate game changer. The only dose that I wrote right for Ketorolac is 10 milligrams. That being said, oral ibuprofen or oral naproxen are probably still better choices for most of our patients, as long as they're not vomiting, if they can tolerate it. So at our shop, based on this well-done study, pretty much every doc is using 10 milligrams of IV Ketorolac instead of 30 milligrams for painful conditions like renal colic. Just beware in patients that have renal insufficiency. Now on the topic of NSAIDs, one trick that I learned from a mentor of mine many years ago was that in patients with a history of peptic ulcer disease or gastritis that you want to avoid oral NSAIDs in, you have the option of rectal NSAIDs like diclofenac 50 to 100 milligrams BID or indomethacin 50 milligrams TID. You can even consider self-administrated rectal NSAIDs in the ED, which is less work for your nurses than the IV. And there's a little bit of evidence for this too. There was a study out of the Emergency Medicine Journal in 2005 that reviewed 179 papers comparing IV NSAIDs versus rectal NSAIDs for renal colic, and they concluded that, quote, Rectal NSAIDs are an effective form of analgesia for patients with acute renal colic and have fewer side effects compared with intravenous NSAIDs. Now Dr. Morgenstern is going to go on to the last paper for our 2016 Lit Review, and that is the PESIT trial. All right, so I started off by saying the medical literature is a lot like the news which unfortunately in 2017 means that I have to talk about at least one alternative fact, right? And in medicine, if you're gonna look for alternative facts, there's no better place to look than the New England Journal of Medicine, which means we're gonna talk about the PESIT trial this year. And the alternative fact, straight out of the conclusions, is that PE will be identified in one in six patients who have first-time syncope. One in six, that's crazy. If that's true, we absolutely should be scanning all these patients. But what are the real facts here? So first of all, the one in six numbers was only amongst admitted patients. So amongst all comers, the patients we actually see, the number was a lot lower, 3.7%. And the study took place in Italy, and because of the referral system there, they tend to see sicker patients. They have higher rule-in rates. But the really important thing to know about this study is the patients who had PE had symptoms of PE. So if you showed up in this study with syncope and tachycardia and a unilateral swollen leg, they didn't do a workup in the emergency department. They'd admit you, and you could get a VQ scan up to two days later. It's not fair to call that a missed PE. So the conclusions of this study should have been, if you have syncope plus signs, symptoms, and risk factors for PE, there's a reasonable chance you got a PE. For all other patients, we should not be working them up. Do not change your practice based on this study. All right, it's time for the big review of all the studies we've talked about in this episode. Ready? Here we go. First, if you're going to use a drug for stable VTAC, use procainamide. Amio kind of sucks for stable VTAC. Next, don't give platelet transfusions to people on antiplatelet agents who have a head bleed. They don't improve outcomes or hematoma size. And on the topic of head bleeds, there's no evidence that rapidly lowering BP in patients with high blood pressures and ICH helps them. Instead, concentrate on pain control and sedation if indicated. In terms of studies that should not change your practice, 
don't be giving antibiotics for all simple abscesses. Be more selective. And when it comes to PE and syncope, don't order a CT pulmonary angiogram for every patient with syncope. What about subarachnoid hemorrhage? For patients who you suspect have suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage and the CT is reported as normal, take the time to review the CT with the radiologist. They might actually pick up something that they missed the first time. Now let's talk about kids. In kids with bronchiolitis, don't let a transient DSAT be the sole decision point for admission. If they're otherwise clinically stable, they can probably go home. And concussion? A bit of activity for kids who have bonked their head and are going home is probably not a bad thing. You might not want to instruct them to sit still in a dark room all day, but rather to do some light activities. For procedural sedation, don't skimp on the ketamine dose. Use 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. And kids don't need to be NPO. The risk of aspiration is almost non-existent. Let's talk ankles. Kids with suspected Salter Harris 1 fractures of the lateral malleolus probably don't need any immobilization at all as the incidence of true fractures is minuscule. And ibuprofen for asthmatics? Totally fine. If you've been avoiding it in those wheezy kids, you don't have to anymore. And on the topic of pain control, we need to get better at treating pain for suspected appendicitis in kids. Consider meeting with your EM group to come up with clinical pathways because according to Dr. Fisher, there's studies that show that order sets can improve outcomes in kids with things like asthma, pain control, and sepsis. And finally, a little counseling for things like obesity in kids in the ED might improve long-term outcomes more than you think. Now, before we sign off, I just want to announce that the Agile MD app that housed all the EM cases summaries has now been transferred to our own EM Cases app that you can get at the Google Play Store if you're Android or at the iTunes App Store if you're an iOS user. Just search for EM Cases Summaries and you'll find the app that you can use at the bedside. It has a great easy searching function that if you're on shift and you vaguely remember something that you heard in the podcast and you just want to look it up quickly, you can use the new EM Cases Summaries app. Well, until next time, take it easy. Mm-hmm.